we can probably go ahead and get started and I'll just I'll start and just say the blessing and everything and then we can get into the content from there. Okay, I will say it in the Hebrew and then the English like usual. Barukata Adonai Eloheinu Melech Haolam Asher Kichanu Bemitzvotav Bitsivanu Laasok Bidivrei Torah. Blessed are you, Adonai our God, sovereign of all, who hallows us with mitzvot, commanding us to engage with words of Torah. Oh, sorry, we're in Genesis 3, too. Forgot to mention that. <clears throat> But the serpent was shrewder than any animal of the field that Adonai Elohim made. So it said to the woman, did God really say, you must not eat from all the trees of the garden? The woman said to the serpent, of the fruit of the trees we may eat. But of the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God said, you must not eat, eat of it and you must not touch it or you will die. The serpent said to the woman, you most certainly won't die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a thing of lust for the eyes and that the tree was desirable for imparting wisdom. So she took of its fruit and she ate. She also gave to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made for themselves loin coverings. And they heard of heard the sound of Adonai Elohim going to and fro in the garden in the wind of the day. So the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of Adonai Elohim in the midst of the tree of the garden. Then Adonai Elohim called to the man and he said to him, where are you? Then he said, your sound. I heard it in the garden and I was afraid because I am naked. I hid myself. Then he said, who told you that you are naked? Have you eaten from the tree from which I commanded you not to eat? Then the man said, the woman whom you gave to me, gave to be with me, she gave me of the tree and I ate. Adonai Elohim said to the woman, what did you do? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Adonai Elohim said to the serpent, because you did this, cursed are you above all the livestock and above every animal of the field. On your belly will you go and dust will you eat all the days of your life. I will put animosity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He will crush your head and you will crush his heel. To the woman, he said, I will greatly increase your pain for conception to labor. In pain, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be toward your husband, yet he must rule over you. Then to the man, he said, because you listened to your wife's voice and ate of the tree, which I commanded you saying, you must not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. With pain, will you eat of it? all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles will sprout for you. You will eat the plants of the field by the sweat of your brow. Will you eat food until you return to the ground since from it were you taken? From you, for you are dust and to dust will you return. Now, Adam named his wife Eve because she was the mother of all the living. Adonai Elohim made Adam and his wife tunics of skin and he clothed them. Then Adonai Elohim said, behold, the man has become like one of us knowing good and evil. So now in case he stretches out his hand and takes also from the tree of life and eats and lives forever. Adonai Elohim sent him away from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. And he expelled the man. And at the east of the garden of Eden, he had his caravim dwell okay. along with the whirling sword of flame to guard the way to the tree of life. 
<clears throat> okay. So for this week, we have the whole story of the fall. Okay, I'll get started with what I had prepared then. So um, the first thing that I thought was important because we don't we don't typically uh, we don't typically think about it all that much in in the way that the sages do. Um, but as far as time elapsing in the garden, the Torah doesn't really give a specific chronology to all these events that are happening. But um, the, the sages and scholars from over time have deduced that all of the events in chapter three uh, happened on the day Adam was created, or Adam or Adam. Um, and according to the sages, it was in the ninth hour of this day that God gave Adam, that I, I don't know all sages, I, some, some people or some rabbis that I've heard have said um, th that specifically it was in the ninth hour of the sixth day that God gave Adam the commandment not to eat of the tree of knowledge. And it was in the 10th hour that he actually did eat of it. So I don't know where, where it came from, but apparently uh, he, he got the commandment not to eat the fruit only nine hours after being created, and he only made it one hour after that before finally eating of the fruit. And something else uh, going along with the whole timeline thing. So everything uh, in chapter three, which actually also includes the birth of Cain and Abel, apparently, after chapter three, that, yeah, that all happened supposedly on the sixth day. I don't know how Eve could have given birth to Cain and Abel all, all just in one day, but um, I don't know. that It is apparently so. It um, not, not necessarily it definitely is that way, but um, in the Kumash and over time, or with, with the traditional interpretation of it, it, that is what they have deduced from it. Um, and so then we kind of get to this, the part about the serpent. The serpent also is really strange because I, I don't think we really understand what the serpent actually is, um, because it's not just some ordinary snake. It is or was something completely different than what we think of when we just think of the word snake today. And in many of the English translations, the verse about the serpent says the ver says the the serpent was not like any other animal. But in the original Hebrew, the word other is actually not in the passage at all. And so the serpent was simply not like any animal. And so even, even if the serpent did end up becoming after God cursed it, what we now know as snakes today. Uh, before God cursed it, at, at the very least stood on, stood on legs, and it was endowed with some form of communication and intelligence prior to God's cursing it. Um, but I don't even know if it's the same, the same serpent snake that we have today that we normally think of. Um, and I also, I, I'm not exactly sure what it represented either. I don't know, um, if it was Satan himself, Hasatan in the Hebrew, 
I don't know if it was the evil inclination. There, there are a lot of uh, rabbis and sages, I think, that, um, that subscribe to the fact that it represents the evil inclination, uh, which is a concept I'll talk about just in a, in a second. But uh, regardless of what it was, it, it was something, something bad, something evil. And so that kind of brings into, uh, brings a question into the picture of how exactly did Satan or even just the physical form of the evil inclination get into the garden in the first place? And how is it that he was able to tempt Adam and Eve in the first place? Um, and this, this essential problem actually has a name and theologians have wrestled with the question for uh, centuries since, since theology was a thing. Uh, the, it's, it's called the problem of evil. And essentially the question is if we have if we have an all-loving God, we have uh, we have a God who made everything and cares for everything and loves everything. How is it that evil exists? How how is it that if we have a loving God, we have suffering and poverty and all these terrible things in the world? Um, and how is it that Satan was allowed to get in and he was allowed to tempt uh, Adam and Eve in the first place? I think I think with the doctrines and theology that's been developing over the past uh, many, many centuries since shortly after the time uh, that Yeshua died and rose. Uh, I think with those doctrines that have been developing, it's pretty much unanswerable because uh, it's, it's kind of, they can't be reconciled. But I think the answer is, I think the answer to the problem of evil, how does evil exist with a loving God is uh, it's simple, but difficult to accept. And I know personally for me, it took me a while of kind of being confronted throughout scripture, uh, with that answer to finally kind of just accept it and say, you know what, I, I don't really, it's not something I jumped for joy over seeing at first, but I'm going to accept it. And the answer is, uh, because God created evil just along with everything else. Uh, and I, I mean, I, I, I'm not saying I'm definitely right or anything, but I, I don't see how it could be any other way. And that, that sort of goes back to what we were talking about the first or second day with, um, when, when God created everything, he called it all very good. Um, and when you look at when you look at certain things in isolation, when you look at uh, just good things in isolation, or you, when you look at evil things in isolation, uh, it can it can be kind of hard to see the bigger picture. But uh, overall, everything is very good, and everything in creation has come from God. And uh, I think I think the 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 sages and scholars uh, view on who Satan is and how he got his power is that he was simply just the, the one appointed to be the bringer of evil into the world. Uh, they don't, they don't really, uh, from what I've seen so far, go try and go into some big elaborate 
explanation of how Satan somehow snuck in under God's nose and uh, got got a grip on the world for a second when God had his back turned or anything like that because that, that didn't happen. <laughs> if it exists, it's because God brought it into existence. Um, and so that's that's the first big thing to just kind of chew on and wrestle with for a little bit. Um, but then that kind of brings up the the whole topic of good and evil in general and in Judaism and in the in the ancient way of looking at things, uh, there's what's called the the good and evil inclinations. And um, <clears throat> the evil inclination, uh, the Yetzer Hara and the good inclination, the Yetzer Hatov, are two forces, and they do essentially what their name implies. The evil provokes and attempts us to do evil, and the good inclination provokes and attempts us to do good. Um, and God actually created man with both our good and evil inclination, uh, and this this is thought to be implied in his use of two of the letter yod in um the word for create in genesis 2 7 uh apparently apparently uh the the sages have derived that uh the reason there's two yods when there's usually only supposed to be one is because uh it's it's referencing both of these inclinations that god created us with both the evil and the good inclination and it's inherent in that word there um but to my to my current understanding the evil inclination actually influences us more in just uh just doing evil or uh doing doing bad deeds and stuff um and i could be wrong but from from what i've seen and read and learned so far the evil inclination is also uh responsible for the human characteristics like ambition and lust and so if we didn't have the evil inclination we wouldn't do things like uh marry or have kids or build houses or any any ambition lust other evil inclination uh characteristic type things um and so essentially what we have to do with the evil inclination is not not drop it from existence it's not necessarily a terrible thing that we have it uh but we just have to put it in check um by constant study and implementation of torah um and so uh actually the 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 kumash cites this this first sort of interaction with the evil inclination in verse one of chapter three where uh the serpents talking to Eve and uh, he's essentially trying to, he, he uh, is doing a common ploy of the evil inclination. Uh, and he's trying to, he's trying to at first appeal to uh, pleasure. He's trying to say uh, the, the, the whole argument of how could it be so bad if it feels, tastes is so good. Uh, he's, he's, he's saying, um, you know, if, if God created it, and if you put it here intentionally, then how is it that it could be bad? Uh, and so that's that's sort of his his first and one of the most common ways that the evil inclination kind of gets a grip on us. Um, are we are we all good so far? I've been kind of moving 
a little fast this time. Do we have any uh, points that we want to hit on any more questions or anything? <clears throat> okay. Um, and then there is there's a whole there's a whole uh, whole rabbit hole that we could dive into with Eve's three words nor touch it in uh, when she when she's telling the serpent about what God told her about the the tree of knowledge of good and evil um, and it's it's very subtle but in this phrase Eve or uh, as her Hebrew name is I might switch back and forth Hava. Uh, Hava is actually adding to the commandment that God gave her, um, because if we look back, God's original commandment was just do not eat it, and um, in in Hava's adding on to God's commandment, uh, the first things that she did was diminish the commandment, the the original commandment that God actually gave her, and the the midrash actually explains uh, and says that. Uh, the serpent actually pushed Hava up against the tree before declaring, just as you did not die from touching it, so you will not die from eating. And so she, she added on to God's commandment and that sort of, that, that was her undoing in the long run. Um, <clears throat> and going deeper down this rabbit hole, uh, one of the things that I wonder about reading through this is what then are we supposed to consider adding to God's commandments? Um, and no matter who you listen to, whether it's a Christian pastor, Jewish rabbi, uh, any of the, the ancient Hebrew sages and scholars, uh, no matter who you listen to, some expounding and uh, interpretation occurs in the study of scripture. Uh, all the great works from uh, no matter what denomination or religion do exactly that. They, they expound on the commandments that are in the Bible to sort of fill in the gaps. And that's not to say that the Torah is insufficient in any way, um, because it has lots of direct instructions and commandments, uh, but it also doesn't list out what to do in every single possible situation that could occur. Uh, it would be way too long to be able to read in a hundred lifetimes if it uh if it talked about every single possible situation and so even though it doesn't do that it, it does give us foundational principles and morals that we can use to guide our judgment um and so that an example of this and i i'm going to share the screen with you guys i made sort of i i i have sort of a way that I visualize this where uh, of, of the, like the right way to expound on, uh, I, I don't wanna say expound, like we can just change stuff whenever we want, but expound is in sort of try to, try to come to the right interpretation. Uh, I have sort of what I think we should do and what we should avoid uh, as Eve kind of showed us. So let me share this screen real quick. And a sort of example of this that I pulled out uh, for this concept is 
the example of the commandment to build a sukkah for the festival of Sukkot. So um, the as to to my current knowledge at least, the the Torah basically just says build a sukkah for Sukkot, but it doesn't necessarily explain uh, how we do build that sukkah. It it doesn't say uh, like the material to use. Um, I, I'm pretty sure on that, but I, I might be I might be wrong though. But so if we're just given the commandment to build a sukkah, but we don't know how, um, actually on this side, I, I imagine I imagine Eve's way of adding to the commandments sort of horizontally, where um, Eve was citing God directly. She was she was quoting God directly. She was saying God said this. Um, and so what she did was she claimed that God commanded something that he really did not. And she put, she put her own addition to the commandment on par with God, what God actually did say. And so in the sort of example with the sukkah, uh, she, she would say, God said, build the sukkah and build it like this. But he didn't really say the second part. Um, so she's, she's, She's adding or making a claim that God said something to her that he did not really do. Um, but with this sort of vertical way of looking at it, um, and this is what this is what if you're if you're a scholar or um, you're, you're trying to figure out how to interpret something, this is the way that I think um, should probably be done. Uh, learning from Eve's mistake, but we take we take a given commandment here, uh, something God really did say, and uh, we sort of we sort of ask ourselves the question that is uh, that's relevant to what we're trying to think about. So, uh, build a sukkah. How do we build a sukkah? Uh, we look at the we look at what the the sages and the rabbis have told us, and uh, what what they have passed down uh, for thousands of years with the sort of traditional way to do things. And we look at the meaning of it and we kind of just break it down from there. But we, we sort of know its place. We know, we know that it is, it's not direct uh, word of God in the Torah, but we, we're trying to just sort of break it down and find the, the right way to do it, I guess. Um, uh, not, not again, not because the Torah is insufficient, but just because um, it doesn't, it doesn't get into every, every single detail for every situation. And so we have to, we have to sort of rely on what the, what the ancient sages and rabbis and teachers have uh, told us over time. And we have to, again, just be sure we sort of uh, keep it in its place. We, we don't, we don't say God God definitely said this like Eve did. Eve was quoting God and she said that he said both things, but he didn't. And sort of sort of still along that line, I don't think it would have necessarily been a bad thing for Eve to say God told us not to eat of the tree. And so because I don't even want to risk it, I'm not even going to touch it. I don't think that would have necessarily been a bad thing for her to say or do that. But uh, when she says God said this and God said this, then that that sort of gets into 
Uh, there are actually three reasons that scripture cites as how Hava was tempted by the serpent. Um, it says that she looked at the tree and the fruit looked good for food. Uh, the tree was beautiful to the eyes and the tree was desirable as a means to wisdom. And in this last part, the serpent also then suggests that Adam and Hava can become like God by eating the fruit, gaining wisdom. Um, so he, he, he also tempted them with, with that aspect of it as well, the, the knowledge and wisdom that they would gain. And then after Adam and Hava eat of the fruit, it says that they heard the sound of uh, Hashem, Adonai, uh, walking in the garden. And what the sages tell us is that God did not immediately appear to them um, because he was teaching us etiquette uh, and teaching that we should not look upon a man in his dis disgrace. And so uh, they derive from the fact that God sort of uh, just walked in the garden for a little bit uh, rather than going straight to them as uh, them or as God not looking upon them in their disgrace and their sin right away. Um, and there's also another issue in the whole meaning that God, that this is, this is all figurative because God can't do human things. And I, I'm probably wrong because I, at, at this, with this specific issue, I, I go up, I go up against the sages a little bit, but I, I'm just, I'm very hesitant to just apply the metaphor label universally to to anything really if it, especially things that i don't understand because uh if i if i if i just don't understand something and i just just can pass it off as being a metaphor then then where where really does it end so i i it might all be metaphor and figurative that they or that when god does stuff like this, but I, I just wanted to say that I specifically am very, very hesitant to just, and then God, when he's uh, walking or figuratively walking in the garden, he calls out to Adam and Eve and he says, where are you? And uh, obviously God knew where Adam was all along and he didn't need Adam's answer in order to find him. Uh, but uh, the sages say that rather he he asks where he was to create a calm dialogue with Adam. Um, and so additionally, the sages say that this question could also carry with it a spiritual sense too. And um, the question could also be could be considered and um, phrased uh, and and this is straight out of the Kumash, what they how they phrase it. Consider how well you have fallen from the heights. Where is your exalted status? So the sages say that this is again like a, a sort of dual meaning. It, it has a physical sense and also a spiritual sense too. Uh, God was saying, where are you physically in the garden? But he uh, also might have been saying, Adam, where are you spiritually? Where like you, you've fallen? Where, where exactly are you at? Uh, in your spiritual status. Um, and so when, when God and Adam start talking then, 
uh, and God, God confronts him and asks him what, what happened. Adam, essentially, he tries to throw both God and Hava under the bus, uh, because he says, the woman whom you gave me, uh, gave me the fruit. And so he, first he, he's throwing Hava under the bus right away, but he's also kind of subtly uh, trying to throw the blame on God too, because he's saying the woman that you gave me led me into this sin. Um, and so after, after he says that, then God goes to Eve and he says, he, he essentially says the same thing to her. What, what did you do? What have you done? And what's, what's actually interesting, or actually before I, before I get to Eve's part, there's another detail about Adam's part. So when Adam says, and I ate, uh, this there's something very interesting that we don't see in the English, but the verb here for eat is actually in the future tense, as if Adam is almost saying, "I I ate and I will eat again." Uh, the the sages say that the reason that he was saying it in the future tense, the reason he was saying, uh, "I I ate and I'm not done eating yet," is because he was he was. Uh, not, not that he was necessarily trying to be rebellious in saying that, but he was saying it in sort of an honest way, saying, uh, yeah, I, if, I, if I'm confronted with the same situation again, I don't think, I, I think even then I wouldn't be able to res resist the temptation still. And so that's a, that's a little important detail that we sort of miss when we translate it into English out of Hebrew. And uh, something else that I never really thought of until I read, uh, or until the Kumash pointed out to me, is that uh, did did Eve did Eve actually even sin at all? Because God actually only gave the commandment to Adam before Hava was even created. Um, but I think, as we see in the passage, the answer is yes, she did sin, uh, and the reason for that is because even though God gave Adam the commandment when it was just him alone uh the two were the two were one they were bone of each other's bone uh they were they were one flesh and so Havai was just as much at fault as Adam and actually what her greatest sin was in this situation uh wasn't actually her herself eating it it was her misleading Adam and causing him to sin and this this is sort of a concept that I've been learning a lot more about just recently, uh, the idea of, or the, 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 I guess, importance of mercy at the expense of yourself. And that, I know that's, that's sort of a very basic uh, doctrine in the Bible, but the, the ways that it is played out in scripture, there's, there's some ways that I've been seeing recently that I did not expect to, to sort of fall under that umbrella. And so it, it was bad enough that Eve ate the fruit herself, but in, in leading her husband Adam to eat it too, she, she's now brought somebody else into a sin with her, and that is far worse than her doing it herself. Um, and so then, then God, with the next whole section, he sort of curses uh, and punishes everybody in the order of their wrongdoing. So that he, he curses and punishes the serpent first as the instigator of all of this. 
and then Hava since she first ate of it, and then Adam, because Adam isn't blameless either. And in the curse on the serpent, we see what I have been taught and what I assume all of you have been taught and what I still believe is our very first overt messianic prophecy that sort of leads to a picture of Yeshua. Um, and I'll actually just read portion again real quick with that prophecy part. So I will put animosity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He will crush your head and you will crush his heel. And so in, in that portion, um, I, I think the seed that God is referring to, uh, the, the seed of the woman that will crush the head of the serpent and have his heel struck by the serpent is Yeshua. And actually, there is a verse in Romans that I think, uh, maybe not directly quoting that passage, but I think it, it's making a, it's sort of drawing us back to that passage, reminding us of that passage in reference to Yeshua. Um, and so I'll read this passage too real quick. Now the God of Shalom will soon crush Satan under your feet. May the grace of our Lord Yeshua be with you. And so that in, in Paul's writing that letter, writing that uh, portion of that letter, I think he's sort of drawing us back to this part in Genesis 3, where we get the prophecy of the seed that's going to come and crush the head of the serpent. And there, there's another one that uh, Ashley and I found today in Psalms that uh, sort of draws us back to that portion too. In Psalm 110, um, this one's actually a short one, so I'll just read through this whole thing real quick. Um, a Psalm of David, Adonai declares to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a foot, footstool at your feet. Adonai will extend your mighty rod from Zion. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will be a freewill offering in the day of your power. In holy splendors from dawn's womb, Yours is the dew of your youth. Adonai has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a Kohen forever. Your Kohen means is the word for priest in Hebrew. You are a Kohen forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. My Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings in the day of his wrath. He will judge among the nations, heaping up corpses. He will crush heads over the entire land. He will drink from a stream along the way, so his head will be exalted. And so this one... If you've, if you've heard the term before, Yeshua is a, a priest, is prophesied to be a priest of the order of Melchizedek, which uh, in the most basic sense means he's going to be both king and priest, I, I believe. And we're going to get into that more in just a few weeks when we get to Abraham's encounter with uh, the, the, the person Melchizedek. But so this passage is talking about the, the, the Messiah that's going to come, and it says, he will judge among the nations, heaping up corpses. He will crush heads over the entire land. And so that's not necessarily talking about the serpent or Satan, but I think, I think the wording there is probably also sort of leading us back to this portion in, um, in Genesis 3, where the, the seed of the woman that's going to be coming is going to crush the head of evil of the serpent of sin forever and so then 
after we get past that uh, sort of prophetic portion, we see where God then punishes Hava for, for her sin of eating of the tree. And in that punishment, God says in reference to her husband, Adam, he says, and he shall rule over you. And so her, her punishment was sort of measure for measure. Since she, since she went to her husband and she influenced him to eat the apple, her punishment is that she will be subservient to her husband. And what we end up seeing, though, is that in obedience to the Torah by both the, the husband and wife, just in general, this, this will restore uh, a wife to her, pro her former and proper status as, as Proverbs 12.4 and 31.10 puts it, uh, the crown of her husband and the pearl of, of his life. Uh, so, so if her, her punishment was subservience and submission to her husband, um, but, uh, if, if, if both parties are diligent in following the Torah and following God, then it, we, we can see sort of a redemption where, where the wife, uh, is restored to her proper position as what Proverbs said. And I'm actually going to read right out of the Kumash because, again, I like the way that they phrase it in here. So, yeah, I'll just read this portion here. So her punishment was measure for measure. She influenced her husband to eat at her command, and now she would become subservient to him. The new conditions of life that made sustenance, the product of hard labor, would naturally, naturally make women dependent on the physically stronger men. Obedience to the Torah, however, restores her to her former and proper status as the crown of her husband and the pearl of his life. The sages ordained that a man should honor his wife more than himself and love her as himself. If he has money, he should increase his generosity to her according to his means. He should not cast fear upon her unduly, and his conversation with her should be gentle. He should be prone neither to melancholy nor anger. They have similarly ordained that a wife should honor her husband exceedingly and revere him and refrain from anything that is repugnant to him. This is the way of the daughters of Israel who are holy and pure in their union. And in all these ways will their life together be seemly and praiseworthy. And so uh, the sort of the sort of thrown off balance that we see as a punishment of the sin of eating the apple uh, can, can kind of be restored if uh, both both parties are diligent in following the Torah. Uh, both both can fulfill their role in the way that they are intended to without without that uh, sort of misbalance still in play. And then now that now that Eve's or God's dealing with Eve was over, he he moves on with uh, getting to Adam now, and it says because he listened to Hava and he it, it's because he failed to do his due diligence and investigate what Hava had offered him. He, he he essentially just listened to her without examining the content of her words. He he chose a momentary uh, enticing choice when his first allegiance should have been to God uh, rather than to the, the the temptation of eating the fruit. And so sort of I, I just referring into humankind in general after this, God says, 
for you are dust. And so the implication with him saying, for you are dust and to dust you will return, is that God, God didn't necessarily really curse man with death. Death rather was just simply a natural consequence of man's new nature. Um, and so what God says is that man comes from the earth. And so it only makes sense that deterioration and old age and decay would return his physical body there one day. Uh, and so that is, that is our punishment, not, not necessarily direct cursing from God, but uh, just, just a, sort of the natural consequence of what Adam and Eve did. And uh, right after that in 320, this is where Hava actually formally gets her name because before she was just the woman. And so the name Hava in Hebrew actually means living, uh, meaning that she would be the mother of all the living. And then the, there's there, there next is the whole section about God giving Adam and Hava garments of skin, which I think no matter whether, whether I am right or wrong in what I think that passage means right now, there is, there is a lot more just to that than we typically think of, uh, just, just God giving them clothes. I, and I've, I've heard other theories lately about it, but if, if my, if how I am interpreting that passage right now is right, and what God actually did was he gave them animal skins, garments of animal skin as their clothing, then this actually is sort of the first instance of sacrificial uh, substitutional atonement that we're going to see in scripture. And if, yeah, if, if it's actually animal skins that are making their clothing, then what we have is uh, the first instance that innocent blood was shed in order to sort of cover over the 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 sin of somebody and so we we're gonna see a whole lot more bloodshed to cover over sin later on throughout the whole torah but this this if if it really was animal skins then this is sort of the first instance and the first look at that whole sacrificial system that we're gonna study and uh, now that mankind has eaten from the tree of knowledge, he, he can no longer be allowed to eat of the tree of life uh, and stay in the garden. And so now, now mankind has the ability to know good from evil, unlike every other creature. And um, as, as the sages explain, um, because of that, he now has an enhanced desire for sensual gratification. And so if man does eat of the tree of life and he does live forever now, what the sages say is that he will, he'll just spend all of his time pursuing this sensual gratification and not increasing his knowledge and doing good deeds and uh, studying Torah like mankind is supposed to be doing. And then just in the last little bit of the chapter, there, there's the whole, I, I'm not sure what all the other translations say, but um, some of them might say angel, some of them might say cherubim, um, but cherubim are very interesting and just bizarre and mysterious beings. They, uh, 
sometimes they might be translated as angel or called an angel, but they're not actually necessarily angels. They, they're, it, we, I think we have a tendency to think of sort of any spirit being as just falling under the category of angel and uh, just looking or just having the appearance of just fat babies flying around in the air because of the knickknacks that we have today. But the the whole realm of spirit beings is actually way more uh, diverse and bizarre than we typically think of. And so um, the Hebrew word for angel is actually malach, and that's the, that's where the name Malachi comes from, malachi. Uh, it, it, malach, what we translate as angel, actually just means messenger. Um, and so anytime we see the word angel, uh, it, it is typically just referring to a messenger for God. But cherubim, and uh, there, there's also referenced other beings called seraphim, uh, those are two sort of unique, different sorts of spirit beings. Uh, and they have different functions and purposes than just uh, the typical sort of messenger angel, I guess. Uh, and so the care of in this instance, uh, in Genesis, is an agent of God's destruction that is tasked with guarding the garden. Um, uh, but later on, when Israel builds the Ark of the Covenant, we're actually going to see that God instructed them to, to place on, on, on both sides of the Ark of the Covenant on the top. They were to make two uh, images of a caravine with, with their wings sort of uh, wrapping over top of the Ark of the Covenant. And so uh, one, of, one of the things I read in the Kumash is that the the caravim aren't necessarily always having the same destructive purpose that we see in this part of Genesis, because here in Genesis, the caravim represents destruction and protection and guarding. And uh, when we get to where the caravim are instructed to be built on the top of the Ark of the Covenant, they are sort of representations of uh, mercy and uh, holiness and divinity. And so they take on sort of another task. Um, and, uh, we, I, I, at least I don't really know for sure what Caravim are in the sort of spirit realm. Uh, if you want to read more about what Caravim are, just read through the book of the prophet Ezekiel, because he has a lot of encounters with Caravim in the, the visions that God gives him. And, uh, if you can make sense of it, please let me know because I cannot make sense of uh, what what he's explaining that he saw because it it is just so it's just so bizarre and it is going to take a lot of study for me to even visualize what one looks like from the way that they're described. But yes, back back to back to the Genesis back to Genesis though. Uh, these, these caravim that God set in place to guard the garden from mankind entering uh, are not just typical angels. They're not just messengers. They have, they have a big purpose beyond uh, what the name Malach, angel, implies. Um, 
And with that, that brings us to the end of the chapter. And um, that is everything that I got ready today. Um, does anybody have anything to add, questions or discussion stuff or anything? I do, but I'll wait and see if you guys have anything first. So uh, I am curious to hear what you guys think about the, the whole concept of adding two commandments. What, what do you guys think about that? I, I made that slideshow as sort of just kind of a visual of what I imagine um, where what we should do is we should take what God definitely gave us and then just try and break it down, uh, try to understand you know, how, how in this situation uh, should I should I react to that knowing what I have been given? Um, and the other one, the one that Eve did, is uh, she she sort of put her own addition on par with it. Um, do you guys agree? Disagree? What do you guys think about the whole the the just in general the idea of adding to commandments? Mom, I'm going to call you out. I was actually just typing. Uh, um, oh, yeah. I said I was actually just typing. Okay. Go ahead. We were, Leanne, we were, you, were, we were, you do it, Leanne. I was just saying, we were just trying to talk, but we, we couldn't, couldn't figure out how to unmute it. Mm -hmm. so we, you were go, just, we were just, okay. Okay. It sounds like I'm, sounds like I'm, Am I too close or something? Just go ahead and talk. So we were just talking about that as you were talking about adding to and um, taking away. And um, I think all religions do that. Um, Judaism gets a bad rap. People think it's a works-based religion and they have all this stuff that they have to do. And um, Christianity does it, you know, they, they do it with saying you can't drink or smoke or, you know, you have to, can't go to movies, you have to no dancing, you know, worship a certain way on, a, you know, all that stuff. So Christianity is as guilty. But I think that um, basically, that's what, to me, Yeshua's entire ministry was just a um, kind of basically saying, um, you know, all these things that you're adding to the Torah are, is making your life miserable um, because they would take a commandment and then they would add things to it in a way, kind of like what you said about um, Hava, not, maybe it would have been okay if she would have just said, you know, I don't want to touch it because I'm afraid if I do, then I'm going to want to eat it but she kind of lied about it. Um, and they, what happens in Judaism is over the years, they have added so many commandments to commandments to commandments to commandments, and they call it a fence around the Torah. And um, it's, you know, it gets to the point where, you know, you can't turn a light bulb on, on Shabbat or um, things like that. And, 
it gets to be kind of burdensome. And I think like what I was trying to say is I think that's what Yeshua was fighting against his entire ministry more so than really, that really seems to me to be the, his big, his big push was, you know, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And, you know, when you, when in our humanness, we add all this stuff in and make it more burdensome and more cumbersome than it needs to be, it becomes a heavy, heavy, heavy yoke. And I don't think it's supposed to be that way, but I don't know. I don't know. That's why those people in India or wherever it is beat themselves with those things and make themselves bleed at Easter, you know? Kind of the way of man, I think. Yeah, that makes sense. <clears throat> that's, where, that's exactly where I was going to go is um, to the New Testament is basically where they're still struggling with it trying to figure out what you know what was exact what was actually asked of them versus what is being added to <clears throat> and it, it's interesting that however many thousands of years later we're still struggling with that and trying to tease out what god actually asked of us and what has been added on and that's what he was you know i mean that's i think what they're saying is how frustrated Yeshua was with them making it so burdensome and making it so that they couldn't actually even do it so that that's where I kind of lead you know I mean that's where I'm currently still trying to find out you know I mean when I'm confronted with new things and am I doing this correctly well what is it that is actually asked and what is it that's just been expounded upon and I you know, I mean, like maybe I just start back at what is actually asked. You know, what I mean, I I always go back to the kosher stuff. You know, where it says, you know, don't cook a, you know, a baby in its mother's milk. Well, I'll just not cook a baby in its mother's milk, but I'm still going to eat my meat and cheese. You know what I mean? Until I see something other than that. You know, I don't. You know, I'm just not going to feel so bad about a chowder. And that's just a simple way of looking at the broader picture. Yeah, and I think it, I think it makes a lot more sense now too, like with with all of that in mind, why why the church has sort of just gone in this direction over the last two thousand years of just just rating itself the Torah altogether because uh, during Yeshua's time it was the Torah plus these million other things and so uh when when you have the gentile church being brought into it then uh they're being told uh torah plus all of this stuff and it i yeah i i understand it still makes me angry that the church has moved in this direction over the years but it will yeah, I I hope that through this study and just in general we can we can sort of bring it back and get to the bottom of what does the Torah say versus what what does man say. <clears throat> Here's another example for you. I don't know exactly what verse it is. I could look it up, but 
too lazy, but I think it might be an Acts where it talks about um, some of the disciples walk this Sabbath day journey. And um, by Halakha, that's a half mile, but actually a Sabbath day journey is like nine miles, <laughs> but they put a restriction on it of a half mile. So, you know, that's, that's this example of, you know, how things, how things get distorted in our humanness. Mm -hmm. And I think that's part of the, that's part of the journey is, is trying to drill down and find out what is rabbinic and what is Torah, what is God. And, uh, and a lot of times, you know, you, you, like I told you last week, you have three rabbis, you have four opinions. So, you know, you're always, you're going to have that. And it, that's part of the journey. That's part of the walk is going through that research and trying to determine what, what from all the, all the research that you do, making it yours, making so that in your mind, you, you've kind of wrestled with it. You've, this is what I believe, or at least for now, this is what I believe. Because we, we're we're in that where we're at the stage we're in right now is trying to determine what's halakha, what's actually what is rabbinic, yet what we're going to adhere to rabbinically, and what is Torah, and what we're going to adhere adhere to Torah wise. Because, and that's just that's a that's this because it changes every week but it's really that's a big deal and it's going to take us the rest of our lives to sort through this because it's it's a massive change of thought and lifestyle and everything so um, what i believe today i probably won't believe tomorrow and i think that's what it's supposed to be though yeah. i think that's yeah, what it's yeah, supposed and, to be but I think, uh, but I think uh, our Christian walk, Christian walk, you got to the point, to the point in a Christian 30 years, 40 years, you got to the point where I know it. I know it. I can, I can yeah. walk it. I can talk it. I can speak it. And then when you start looking at Torah and you start looking at, at, at the other half of the Bible that Christians don't even hardly look at it because it's, it doesn't apply to us. Then you and find out you that, find it, out that it, God's, word, God's word, and you don't and know, you don't know anything. anything. And uh, yeah. and, and you you have and to build you your foundation, build foundation, all, foundation over all over again. Yeah, I think that I think the struggle is meant to be for the rest of your life. You know, I agree. I think I that agree. you're meant to just wrestle with how to implement Torah in your life forever i don't think it's ever meant to be as we as simple as we make it you know what i mean and especially in you know current modern christian and the other like like a good example of how that is in modern day like like we can't really grasp you know a chowder for example or you know kosher stuff but you know what i mean as we get older, or I mean, as I get into this and realize, like, for example, alcohol consumption, you know, we're always taught in modern Christianity that that is wrong. You know what I mean? That's just a absolute when in scripture, it's not taught that it's, you know what I mean? They used it 
they used it even not just not just medicinally but for joy and for celebration and you know what i mean and yet it's a current modern evil for the sake of you know what i mean i think it's the added protection around the torah type thing that we've done so i mean i think that's a current thing that we can look to that's similar to all those things you know what i mean scripturally that that they did i guess yeah and sort of still going on along with uh like yeshua's mission i think like lately from what i've been seeing it seems like two of the bigger like foundational parts of his ministry was uh or in reference at least to commandments was uh like what you said jim and leanne to draw a line between what is torah and what is tradition and to uh like the whole the whole issue we talked about the other day too with like the light and heavy uh to say or to, to draw a line between torah and tradition and to to give us like a better understanding almost of like which the the sort of torah weight system what what is which which commandment to follow if you're given the option where you can only follow one and yeah i for, from from what i've been seeing lately i've been seeing more and more of those two aspects being sort of like his main missions in coming to earth uh as regards the torah and commandments and stuff <clears throat> which that brought about a conversation jacob and i had, had about the fact that torah often in daily life comes in opposition to itself you have to choose a heavier and a light and at, at any point yeshua had to have been confronted with two uh, mitzvot in opposition and if so by choosing the the right one does that mean the other one was the sin and if so why not and if he was never put in that position then that i don't know i guess that bothers me a little yeah i i still want to look at the wording for the new testament when it talks about him right because uh if it if it only says that he was blameless and we've just been inserting the whole thing that says uh he didn't sin then that would be sort of something really big that we missed with the whole heavy and light thing because it, it i mean yeah even like with the the shabbat situations where uh like with with him healing on shabbat he chose to do a a greater good by um breaking technically one of the commandments uh and then he cites just like just like the levites do on shabbat because they they're having mercy on the people and so they sacrifice for the congregation of israel and they break shabbat 
they take the sin on themselves to do it for the people. And so, yeah, I, I don't know the implications of that either. If that, like, does that, does it mean that he wasn't sinless, but he was still blameless? Did he, did he technically sin, but he just was still righteous because of the light and heavy thing? Here's another one. Kind, I mean, I think this makes sense. At least it does to me. I've been thinking about it. Is when they, when the, he and his disciples were walking through the grain fields and they were plucking off the the grain and eating it on Shabbat. They everyone focuses on the Shabbat um, issue of that, but what about the bugs? Because there would have been bugs in that, right? And I mean, I doubt that if him and 12 guys walking through a field grabbing off wheat or barley or whatever the heck it was and just pop popping it in their mouths, I bet they ate some bugs and you're not allowed to eat bugs, most bugs, some bugs you can, but I've thought of that, but you know, how's that work? I've never heard anybody ask that question so if you get an answer let me know <laughs> if they had to have eaten bugs unkosher well, bugs hoping, i was hoping you would answer whether oh no i have no, how, no, I have no. <laughs> come on <laughs> huge I'm, yeah i'm i'm me and actually ashley were just talking about this earlier oh mom you're i think it's your microphone that has a really bad echo i think okay yeah there it stops uh but yeah the, the one the thing that i'm still wondering about that we were just talking about earlier is i i think i understand ba the basic premise behind the whole i desire mercy not sacrifice thing what what yeshua said when he was confronted with the whole plucking grain on the sabbath thing i think i understand that concept uh and like in the examples that he cites i desire mercy not sacrifice so that's why the Levites, uh, and that's why when the priests, when they sacrifice on Sunday, or on Sunday, on Shabbat, uh, and they technically break it, that's why they're still blameless, is because they're, they're doing an act of mercy on uh, all the people of Israel, but I still don't understand how the heck that applies to his situation, where they were just eating some grains. I don't understand what he was doing that was merciful in just plucking grains to eat for himself. I, uh, I mean, I, I, I know there's probably an explanation that I don't understand, but I just, I don't see it. But so if that's, that's another one. If you guys know the answer to that too, what, how, how he was having mercy on someone or something and just eating the, the wheat, on Shabbat, then let me know of that too, because I still don't understand that one. So if you were asking for a reply, we don't have an answer. <laughs> oh, no, I, no, I wasn't asking for a reply. Um, 
there's another portion of it that I wanted to get your guys' thoughts on too. Um, oh yeah, just the the problem of evil in general, like the the idea that uh, God created evil just along with everything else, just as a part of his creation and uh, sort of the, the, the easy answer to a hard question. Do you guys, do you, Jim and Leanne, mom, anybody, do you guys have thoughts on that at all? My thought on that is it's fairly, it, it's fairly recent for me. So I don't, I don't have a ton of thoughts on that because I've, I'm still just fresh into processing that, even though it should be pretty self-evident that, you know what I mean? Like, you know, <laughs> the dogs are all snoring, sorry. That um, it was there all along with, you know, me with him all along, which would imply that either it predeed, you know what I mean? It preceded him or at least at, was at the same time. So, I mean, it would have to have been either created or in essence, somewhat equal to. So I don't really like that either. So I, I guess I would settle more with he created it for his own reason to serve a purpose. So... I mean, I can see some of those purposes. I don't necessarily like that for an individual, you know what I mean, for an individual thing. But in the idea that in the grand scheme of things, it serves a purpose for the greater good. I'm good with that. As long as it's not happened to me, I guess. But even then, I hope I have the courage and the integrity to stay with that. And, you know what I mean? And, and believe that still. So. Well, I know I've, we've had this discussion before also. You know, you talk about the concept in other religions of the yin and the yang. And I've also um, read some stuff on that God created Satan to be the prosecutor and prosecute mankind. And I don't know if that's true or not. Um, I, I think, you know, I, I think... Um, the Christian aspect, I think it's more that Satan bad and, and Satan fell and, 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 and he's doing his own thing. But I think that, I think that just this, my opinion, I think that God created Satan for a purpose and uh, yet to hurrah and yet to tov. I think that's that, that evil inclination that is in us and the good inclination it's in us, and I think that Satan had, was created. If he's an angel, he was created by God, and he has a purpose. And what? And anytime the angel's created, he has a specific purpose. So I think that that's exactly what he's supposed to do. And I've heard, I've heard that there's a concept also. I don't know if it's true. I've just heard, I've heard a lot of things. That um, did God create evil, or did he create? the possibility of evil 
like like there's a whole basket of possibilities and evil evil decision versus good decision i don't know is it is it dependent on the is it dependent on any creature with a nishama whether there's evil or not i don't know i don't know if it's what i mean i don't know i think it's almost <laughs> both like i <clears throat> and i've been thinking about it with the whole uh concept of like free will too uh like i with with both of those i i i don't see how it could be that we or that uh god didn't like quote unquote create evil or uh bring evil into the world uh and i also don't see how at least on god's level we could also have free will, uh, which they might have different implications, both of those arguments. But for me, it, it both both times it goes back to like the very beginning, the moment of creation. Because in in my head, for me, for me to sit here and say that I can make my own decision that God uh, or God isn't God didn't decide everything for me at the start or that god uh didn't create evil along with everything else is almost to in, in my head the only the only way that that could exist is uh if god wasn't all-knowing if and with the the issue of evil specifically uh for evil to exist apart from him he he would either have had to not be able to see the future when he created everything the way he did, or he would have had to create everything and sort of do some blinding mechanism to himself momentarily or get distracted and come back and Satan was there or something, which there's no evidence that that happened. And so I, yeah, it, yes, that for, just in my head, I I can't see any other way that it could be other than that God, uh, for evil, he created evil at the beginning, just like everything else. Uh, and for the whole issue of free will, which is, again, like a separate thing, I, I don't see that we could, or see how we could, on his level, have free will uh, if, he, if he created everything set on a certain, set in a certain motion, uh, and he knew what would happen for all time. But I also think we do somewhat have free will. So that my my take on free will specifically is weird. Going to the, the evil portion, I mean, two instances of, you know, quote unquote, evil that's easily seen by everyone is Judas and the Holocaust. So Judas, you know, I mean, like, yeah the the story of resurrection requires a judas and so in that act of evil comes about the redemption of the world and also in the act of the holocaust which is you know what i mean obviously evil we see the rebirth of israel as the nation so you know what i mean like evil 
you know what I mean? Obviously, the Holocaust is evil, and yet God used it to as a springboard for the, you know, the bringing back of Israel as a nation. So I don't know what that means. Yeah, and I think the reason that we probably have so much trouble accepting that is because of the doctrine that's developed for such a long time of just just only focusing on God's aspect of love towards us and nothing else because uh as as far as I can see the re the reasons that God gives for essentially doing everything that he does is or, or the motives for doing it is uh because it glorifies me and I did not like that at first either and it I think being raised and taught how we are, I think it's, that's the typical response because that seems like prideful or whatever for God to just say, I'm doing like everything I do, I do for my glory. But I, I don't remember where it's at, but there, there's, there's a passage, I think, in one of the prophets uh, where God literally says like word for word, uh, don't you think for a second that I'm doing this for you, Israel, because I'm, I'm only having mercy on you. I'm only doing this for me and so that I can be glorified. He, so, yeah, I, I, think, I think the root of the issue of accepting uh, the, that God created evil is because we focus way too much on uh, God's primary motivation being that he just loves us and he does everything for us rather than God wanting to be bring glory to himself and uh do do good for him and I don't that's that's what I think is why it's so hard for us to sort of come to that but uh uh that's everything that I have so um unless someone else has uh, like another topic to get into or talk about, then I think we can finish up for the night.